1 Corinthians chapter 4, reading the first five verses there. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Imagine in your work being judged, being evaluated by someone who really doesn't know your position at your workplace, in your company, who's never seen your job description, who has never viewed your stated goals, who isn't in any position of authority over you, and you learn that this one has been evaluating you and judging you, uh, not only uh, there, but he has gone out all over town and given you a negative evaluation. Now, that's the kind of situation Paul was in in dealing with the church in Corinth, And it's because of that situation, he now, after having spoken to them in general about their divisions in the first three chapters, having warned them against such things and having reminded them of the basic message of the Scripture, the basic theme of the Christian life, which is the cross of Christ, the message of the cross to the world foolishness and weakness But to those who are being saved, the wisdom and power of God, this is the context uh, for this, uh, these verses. And in these verses, we find Paul defending himself and his ministry against criticism. But in the process of doing that, Paul is answering some of the most vital questions that you and I can ever ask of ourselves. And so I want us to see this passage in, in that way and draw appropriate conclusions and applications, but to remember that the initial context is that Paul is reminding us that when we tend to be critical of others, that this is how one should regard people, and we should regard others this way. But of course, in the process, the secondary application is that each of us who claim to be children of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, each of us find ourselves answering life's greatest questions as Paul has asked them for himself. And the first question is this, who am I? What am I? What's my identity? What am I to be about? And the answer that Paul gives is not the kind of answer that anyone in the ancient world, in the context of the Roman Empire, would want to hear, and not one that you and I would much like to hear, except 
that we have grown up in a free society, a few of us ever uh, experiencing servants, uh, and none of us, I trust, experiencing slaves, we have different baggage. We have grown up in a kind of, of Christian culture and think of servant talk in a, in a, in a non-pejorative kind of way, in a, in a sanitized sense. We've been at least uh, culturally taught from youth that we are to serve others, that we are to have a servant's heart for the Lord and others. And yet in the day and age in which Paul was writing, it was an insult to tell someone, you are a slave, you're a a servant, and that's all you are, and that's how I expect you to act and relate to others. If there was one yearning on the part of slaves and servants of the empire, it was to be free. To, to have this burden removed so they could do as they pleased. They never wished to be known as a servant or a slave. And if you were a free person, it was, uh, it was the greatest put-down, the chief insult to be referred to as a slave. And yet Paul says, now look, the first thing that you have to get straight about me, about yourselves, you who have embraced Christ as Savior and Lord, this is precisely how one should regard us as slaves and servants, servants of Christ. Now, a servant, and particularly a slave, is someone who doesn't belong to himself who isn't free to choose what he will do, where he will go, where he will live, how he will live. He is a person, she is a person under the orders of a master, the authority of another, and must come to terms with that or the servant will be absolutely miserable as are Christians who ask themselves only, what do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to go? What do I want to do with my money? What do I want to do with with my talents and my gifts? What are my hopes? What are my dreams? Instead of saying, oh Lord, oh Lord, begin working, working through my desires, working through my abilities, and through the counsel of others, and through the circumstances and providence of life, and lead me in a way you would have me go, because I am your servant. I am yours. And Paul finds his his rest, his, his confidence, his identity, first of all, in saying, if you're going to talk to me about me, talk to my boss, because I'm simply a servant. But then he sharpens the focus. You and I may, may say, uh, well, uh, maybe that was an arresting metaphor in the first century, 
Um, but in our day and time, how can we talk of, of servant and, and slave language when we drove up in, in relatively nice cars and we live in uh, nice homes and we draw good incomes and even the poorest among us, if you place you know, if you place our assets over against the upper classes of most other countries, find that we are fabulously wealthy. We live as the potentates did of Paul's day. How can we speak in servant's terms? And so Paul immediately sharpens the focus. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards are those that are entrusted with the things of others. They are the trusted, reliable dispensers of those things that have been placed by an authority at their disposal. This is a term, an office, a station that we're a little more familiar with. We see stewards uh, as, as managers, as supervisors, as administrators, uh, people employed to do the, the catering or, or superintend the, the culinary affairs aboard ships or in hotels. A stewardship is something uh, experientially we're a little more familiar with. In other words, what Paul is saying is, As I look at all that I have, as I look at those things that God has entrusted to my care, my time, my resources, my home, my life situation, my gifts, my health, I recognize not only that I am a servant, but that everything, every single thing that I have belongs to someone else. The psalmist puts it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. A steward may live in a, in a great house, might handle beautiful and valued treasures, may have vast sums of money passed through his hands, but he recognizes all the time that he handles what he does does and satisfies accounts, and lives his life not as his own, but on the behalf of another. Nothing that he is holding on and dispenses belongs to himself. And Christians, Christians are in many different contexts, many different situations, some in extreme poverty, especially our brothers and sisters in third world countries, some under the constant threat of persecution, some in very tough inner city urban situations which most of us would find very difficult, some living in affluent suburban neighborhoods and large homes. But for each and every one, God's word is, this is how one should regard himself. This is how others should regard him. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a servant. 
You belong to him. You're under his orders, and you are a steward of everything that you have, and particularly a steward of that grand and glorious message with which he has entrusted us, which is what Paul is referring to here as the mysteries of God. For Paul, mysteries are never things that are hidden, but he speaks of mystery as those things that are still unrevealed to the eyes of the world because God has not yet opened their eyes and enabled them to see these things. But mysteries are the things that have been revealed to His church, namely the message of the cross, the gospel. This is the greatest treasure with which He has entrusted us, and we are stewards of it. Called to be faithful in verse 2. Now, if a master lives and tells his steward, I'm going to hold you accountable for, for paying the bills, for satisfying accounts, for watching over the staff, for taking care of the uh, children of the household and all the rest, he expects him to do it. And that was the meaning of, uh, of Jesus' parable, you know, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. When he says, the master of the house has gone away and he has left varying talents with different stewards of his. And he expects those left uh, to use those talents and to make them gain and to multiply for him, the master. And so we go very naturally from this question of identity. Who am I? What am I? What am I to do? To the second question, and that's what's required of me? What's my job description? What am I to do? And we would expect a, a sort of a, a long, uh, a detailed job description, the kind that we have when we may go into a place of employment. We would certainly expect this uh, like the… Um, um, uh, the Nike marketers might tell us, just do it, or, or old Al Davis, just win, just win, success. That's what's required of you. And of course, the, the people of Corinth were looking for that sort of thing. That's why in some measure they were criticizing Paul. Paul didn't have the personal power and dynamism of a Simon Peter. He didn't possess the rhetorical eloquence of an Apollos. And so they were criticizing him and saying uh, that he's not very much. And Paul says in verse 2, there is only one requirement that is to be found, and that is fidelity, that you be found faithful. The only requirement of a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, is faithfulness. Now, that's that's a compelling thing. Because when you and I look at, at the visible church today and we try and figure out, you know, who's faithful? Who's faithful? Who's, who's doing the Lord's bidding? We usually look at perhaps the preacher with the biggest church, the evangelist with the greatest worldwide ministry, 
But the bottom line is, as Scripture over and over reminds us, we don't really see. We don't really know. We don't see the heart. And so Paul moves very quickly from stating that the requirement is faithfulness to say, now, now don't start comparing, going, well, uh, who's the most faithful? Uh, Paul, Apollos, uh, Cephas, you, this group, that group, our group here, that group over there. Who's the most faithful? Let's measure and see. Because he says there's no human court that will make this judgment as to who is faithful. He puts it he puts it, doesn't he, in almost an offensive manner in verse 3. He realizes these people have been criticizing him, and he says, it doesn't matter, or it matters to me very little. It's a small thing that uh, what you think of me and what your judgment is of me, because Paul realizes that people can be fooled. When you and I look over the landscape of Christendom and see uh, a burgeoning, growing evangelical churches, uh, we might tend to say, well, it just goes to show that if you preach the gospel, preach the word faithfully, people will come. And then we look at other faithful churches where the Scriptures are upheld and faithfully proclaimed, and they're having a terrible struggle, and hardly anyone is coming out. And we comfort them by saying, well, it just goes to show you that if you preach the same message that Jesus preached, you'll be despised. Uh, and uh, uh, if you preach the Word in power, the world will take offense and people will stay away. And then we look at a rapidly growing uh, uh, a liberal church that's go, uh, growing because of a, a plethora of activities and, and entertaining things, and people are going, and we say, well, it just goes to show that people are so hungry today that even if you give them the, the watered-down gruel of humanism, uh, people will come because they're so hungry. And the bottom line is we don't know. We don't really know what's going on. We're not the judges of the living and the dead. We don't know why uh, one faith community grows and another doesn't. It's not up to us to know. Because Paul says in verses 4 and 5, there is one who will judge on the day appointed for judgment, and we await his judgment, his evaluation. We can fool each other, and we often do. And, of course, we can even fool ourselves. And Paul says, hey, as far as I understand my motives, what I am doing, how I am conducting my life, my conscience is clear. But that doesn't matter either because I can't accurately judge myself. I don't really know my own motives. I don't know my own heart. I don't understand some of the things I do. I know that sin clings to everything I do in one way or another. Paul says, it doesn't matter whether you judge me. I don't even judge myself because there is only one who is the judge, and he is the one, and that's the answer to the third question, who is ultimately to evaluate me? Who is ultimately to judge me? And that's the Lord. He says this at the end of verse 4, It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, 
who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Paul says the Lord will shine a light into our lives which will expose all the hidden things, even the motives of our hearts. And if you were to stop there, I don't know about you, but I would be in absolute and utter horror of that day. But I want to step back and remind you of a passage in John chapter 13 which illustrates, I believe, this whole thing so beautifully. Think of one chapter in the Bible that crystallizes everything that I think Paul is doing here, and I think it's John chapter 13. Jesus, on the night before going to the cross, on the last night of his life, is teaching this same message to his disciples. This is how one should regard us. And he takes off his robe, and he girds himself with a towel. He gets down on his knees, plays the role of a servant, a menial task, crawling from one dirty set of feet to the other, washing his disciples' feet. And he says, this is not only what I've been to you, but it's what I want you to be to one another. See yourselves as servants, slaves. And of course, Judas is the great picture of the fact that you can fool others. The disciples had to choose one faithful steward to handle the monies, the monies of the group, and Judas was selected. He was the one that they said was a faithful one, a faithful steward. Let him handle the money. He can be trusted. And yet Judas, in fact, was a thief and a betrayer. He had fooled the others into thinking that he was the guy to be trusted. And so the judgment even of the apostolic band was wrong. And another lesson here in John chapter 13 is Simon Peter. Simon Peter, who fooled himself. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't even judge myself. Why? Because I can fool myself as Peter did. Peter said, Lord, though all the rest desert you, though all the rest betray you, I know my heart. I'll be with you through thick and thin. I'll go with you to the end. I'll lay down my life for you. And within a matter of hours, before the night was over, Peter had denied his Lord three times and turned tail and run. That chapter is a a living illustration, John chapter 13, of what Paul is talking about here. And because our motives, our hearts, even our deeds in the best of times continue to be tainted by sin, how can we have hope? Well, Paul goes on wonderfully, majestically, masterfully, incredibly in this context at the end of 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. In that day, each will receive commendation from God. Commendation 
from God. How can that be? How in the light that shines into our lives and exposes our motives can there possibly be hope for any one of us if we're to be judged as stewards on faithfulness? Don't turn to it. Just uh, listen to these glorious words that Paul writes to another church in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He goes on, no. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how one should regard us. As servants and stewards, yet in Christ, new creations ransomed, restored, healed, forgiven, with hope in that day that is coming because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. You know, the roads that will lead us in this life from this place will take us many different ways and contain many twists and will lead us penultimately to different ends before, by God's grace, we join again before His throne. Some here, I think of some of our young folk graduating in a few weeks. Some may one day stand in following Christ before great convention halls and hear the cheers of people as their candidate for high office. Some of you may rise to head great companies and be known and well-loved. Some in following Christ's call may go to distant lands and in your life kneeling alone in a cell with your head bowed, battered, bloody for the faithful testimony you've borne to Jesus Christ. For most of us, it will be somewhere in between. A relatively unknown, mediocre, in the eyes of this world and its judgment, with neither well-known victories or tragic defeats. But for each one of us, the requirement is the same. This is how one should regard us, servants of Jesus Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And because Jesus Christ shed His blood, 
in him we may one day hear the living God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. May it be so in each in every one of our lives. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we pray that you might seal these truths to our lives, that we might exalt in our lowly position and in Christ our exalted position. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Enable us to walk before you as faithful servants, as faithful stewards. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake. Amen.